Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. Thanks for tuning in BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please contact us at bios.community backslash AWS. We're thrilled to welcome Becky Ferdehert, investment partner at Andreessen Horwitz Biofund, and Seth Lieblick, principal at 8VC to the show today. Thank you both for joining us for this special episode. To co-host, I'm joined with my colleague Chris Godbon. We'd love to kick things off, folks, if you can share some brief introductions with us. Becky, can you start? Yeah, sure. First, thank you very much, Chaz and Chris, for the invite to be here today. I think what you're doing here at BIOS is is really special. Uh, So I am a partner on the A16Z bio investing team, where I personally focus on early stage companies that are building technology-driven platforms for therapeutic discovery and development, as well as tools and technologies that can fundamentally change what is possible in bio research today. I am a scientist by training, and I like to say will always be a scientist at heart. Um, I moved to the Bay Area initially to do my PhD in molecular biology at UC Berkeley, where I studied eukaryotic gene regulation. And then I cut my teeth in drug discovery as a postdoctoral fellow at Genentech. After my postdoc, I joined Amgen in South San Francisco initially as a research scientist, where I was working in a technology innovation group. In that group, I focused on technology development, primarily for cell and gene therapies. I was then given the opportunity to join Amgen's business development team, where I spent several years doing everything from search and evaluation to transactions to establish early stage partnerships between Amgen's research teams and technology platform companies like those that I invest in today. And this is where I met Seth and had the the true pleasure of working closely together for several years. Thanks again for joining us, Becky. Glad to have you in the show. And Seth, if you could share the same, great introduction. Yeah, thanks, Jazz. Thanks, Chris, uh, very much for ha- having me on this podcast with you. And Becky, it's always great to see you again. The years together were good, and hopefully they'll continue to be good together in the future. Uh, a bit about my personal background and current state of the world that I operate in. So background-wise, I had the pleasure of moving out to California something like a decade ago, roughly, to do my PhD at Caltech, where I worked on computational protein design and protein engineering problems of various sorts. Insulin was where most of my published work occurred. And directly after I left Caltech, literally finished on a Friday and then started on the next Monday at Protomer Technologies, where I was one of the key early team members helping get that company off the ground. I didn't stay at it very long. I was there roughly a year 
Subsequent, though, to my departure, and earlier this year, it was acquired by Eli Lilly in a nice, sizable transaction, is the way I like to put it. After Protomer, I left and joined ZS Associates for consulting, where I helped pharmaceutical companies, biotech companies, large and small, work through marketing, sales, and commercialization problems more generally, as well as strategic questions about how best to advance their portfolio and build their companies over time. After ZS, I then joined Amgen, where I also had the pleasure of working with Becky and, and the entire team at Amgen, which was full of great people. And it was a special time in my life. And I think a special time of people there and a special group of people. At Amgen, I did a variety of things, search and evaluation, transactions, and alliance management, both with platform technology companies, as well as with academics in strategic interactions there as well. And then after Amgen, I left and have joined HBC now as a principal on the BioIT team here, where my focus is 80 to 95% of my time on life sciences broadly. And this encompasses things like platform technologies, therapeutics, infrastructure and tools companies, as well as diagnostics. We have a pretty broad remit here, which is quite exciting to be able to work on whatever the newest innovations and technologies are with the most exciting and brilliant founders and entrepreneurs out there. Thank you both for that great introduction. As we dive in, let's talk about new trends going from pharma to VC. So as you both highlighted, prior to entering the world of VC earlier this year, you spent time in Amgen's business development team. Can you tell us more about your time at Amgen? What drew you to the role? What are some of the skills you gained and the lessons you learned? Yes, yeah, so I can take a shot first. So from a relatively young age, I knew I wanted to be a scientist and wanted to do work with my life that contributed in a meaningful way to improving human health. But as a research scientist in pharma, I found that what I enjoyed most was coming up with the initial ideas for new technology-driven projects and thinking of creative ways that technology could be applied to solve scientific problems. And I think because of this desire to work on the best, latest technology and not to reinvent the wheel, I found myself continually looking externally, particularly at biotech startups, for innovative technologies that could complement research programs at Amgen. Because of this natural curiosity and external innovation and, and desire to collaborate, I got to know the Amgen business development um, team really well. And when a role opened up there, it was just a natural fit from both sides. In terms of the, the skills gained during that time, I learned so many skills. It was really a priceless experience, set myself up for a really fun and an interesting career. One skill that I think I will always value and that comes to mind is an eye for technologies and early science that will not only be translationally relevant, but that ultimately will be attractive to pharma. Seth and I both really had the real honor to spend countless hours and diligence calls with true experts in drug discovery and development across therapeutic areas at Amgen. And learning from these colleagues as to how they think, how they make decisions, how they think about drug discovery and development has been one of the most valuable things that I took away from this experience. And I think is a, a unique view that people like Seth and myself bring as VCs who come from PharmaBD. Another skill that I really honed during my time in business development is the confidence to pick up a new area of science. Research scientists are very used to being deep experts in their area of work. 
but as a business development person working in search and evaluation, we're constantly asked to look at new areas of science, evaluate the landscape, form an informed opinion, and then often share that opinion with executives. And I think this is another skill that really serves people who have spent time in BD well in, in BC. Yeah, thanks, Becky. I can also take a, a short crack at this. What drew me to the Amgen role in particular was it was a very brilliant blend and fusion of different skills and job responsibilities. And so what does that mean exactly? What it really means is that in a way at Amgen BD in the particular role that I had and that Becky had, it was more startup-like in the sense of getting to wear many hats, getting to work on all sorts of different therapeutic areas and even all different aspects of business development which in a way is unique from how most large pharma companies operate their business development groups in general. And to put a finer point on that, search and evaluation, transactions, and alliance management are usually separate roles at most large companies where you have separate people responsible just for each of those three sleeves. And in the roles Becky and I held at Amgen, I think we were lucky in the sense that we got to do all three of those things all the time. And because we worked on platform technologies, the breadth of technologies that we worked on covered every therapeutic area and even non-therapeutic questions as well. So things in clinical and regulatory, et cetera. And it was that breadth of the role and that flexibility that really attracted me. Throughout my career, most of the things I've done, at least post-PhD, have been these sorts of larger scoped in responsibility, broader roles, because while I don't have OCD, I really do enjoy working on lots of different projects from day to day. And that's what attracted me the most to the Amgen role. In terms of skills gained and other capabilities gained at Amgen, I mean, there's just so many to list. Becky certainly highlighted several of the important ones. One more I would add is actually negotiating capability. It's very different to negotiate one-off deals, and, and I helped in negotiation at Protomer, versus doing it day-to-day -day on dozens of deals, and you learn a different flow and a different set of importance about deals and a different way of handling things that enables you to really understand what's going on in negotiations in a way where if you've only done one deal in your life for, say, your car or two deals for your car and your house, the repeated game dynamics just don't get to play out there. You don't get to see all the different ways negotiations can play out, what walking away really means, how likely, for example, it is if you walk away from negotiation, the partner might come back to you and make a higher offer, et cetera. And so it's really that ability to go through that skill in real life in repeated situations that enables one to develop that muscle. And being able to do that at Amgen, I think was quite beneficial. And it's, it's a skill that I take with me into the world of venture where we have a portfolio of companies, many of them first-time founders who haven't done many deals before. And sometimes they're concerned, right? If I walk away from this partner, does that just mean the deal is dead, right? How much can I push for with a partner? And there's encouraging words I can give them in those situations based on my experience I've had, which is, at least I like to think is helpful. Hopefully my portfolio of CEOs would agree as well. In recent years, the pivot from pharma BD to VC, especially the earlier stages of innovation, seems to be occurring more and more frequently. Having made that jump yourselves from PhD to BD and now to VC, 
I'd be very curious to hear your thoughts on this trend. So I already described kind of some of my motivations in transitioning from a research scientist to business development. I really loved working in technology BD and, and learned an immense amount there as we discussed. But ultimately, I became a bit frustrated with the lack of risk appetite in pharma. Early stage deals on truly new and innovative technologies can be the most challenging partnerships to execute because the science is not yet proven. And even if the economics are reasonable, which you know is often not the case, there's still an opportunity cost for the pharma who must pick and choose where to spend their resources. I was lucky enough to have an office next to Janice Nave, who leads Amgen Ventures. And over time, found myself knocking on her door more and more to come say, hey, Janice, I found this cool technology. It's too early to partner on it, but instead, could we perhaps invest in it with the selfish goal of building relationships with this company that could maybe grow into a BD partnership down the road? And it was really through this work with Amgen Ventures that the idea of pursuing a career in venture capital first piqued my interest. I'll also take this opportunity to publicly thank Chaz, who actually introduced me to the A16Z team, for which I will be forever grateful. So thank you. But regarding the trend more, more generally, I think for the right type of person, the transition from BD to VC is a really natural one. You're comfortable with quickly picking up new areas of science. You know how to diligence a company and its science well. You understand how pharma thinks. So ultimately, you know whether or not this will actually be interesting to the downstream buyer. One of the big differences, particularly for early stage VC, is that the level of risk tolerance is different. And there's also the fact that at the end of the day, you as the VC must make the investment decision rather than leaning on a diligence team that you are guiding and working closely with. I have the contrarian view on, on the question, actually, Chaz, which is it's not clear to me that trend truly exists in a sense of a shift of percentages of people moving from one job to another. A large part of what's happened in the industry since March of 2020 and, and most acutely in the last year is just an enormous amount of turnover in positions. And I think it was in September... Just overall in the economy, 3.4% job turnover rate, job quits rate at least, which equates to something like 40% turnover per year in the U.S. writ large, which is just an enormous number uh, relative to historical standards. I'm not too sure I agree with the premise of the question that we've seen a, a growing trend. I can certainly speak to my reasons for leaving, which I'm happy to. I would say... The biggest reason I left was the amount of science that can be done at an early stage startup as a percentage of the activity occurring at the startup is much higher. Certainly, Amgen and the farmers do lots of early stage science, but a very large percentage of their time and activities is spent on essentially a single experiment, right? You run a phase three trial, you run a phase two trial. It's one experiment. It's a very important very expensive experiment that requires lots of resources, lots of attention, lots of very smart people to make it effective and successful. But at the end of the day, it's basically one experiment. And at early stage companies and at early stage research in general, you have the ability to do lots of different experiments 
lots of pivots, lots of changes, and a lot of flexibility that later stage clinical trials just simply can't do as a matter of the cost and time to move that kind of ship. It's a very large aircraft carrier to move. And at large companies, because of the expense of trials, because of the expense of moving that aircraft carrier group from opportunity to opportunity, they've quite understandably set up committees and strategic priorities so that things are consistent year to year. If you're running a five-year clinical trial in cardiovascular space, for example, you want to continue to invest in cardiovascular in ways that are consistent with the trial you're running, which may or may not be the optimal thing in terms of what the latest novel targets are in, in neuro, for example, or in COVID. It makes it a little bit more difficult to turn that very large aircraft carrier group, as an analogy, at the, the drop of a dime. That's what excited me about VC, is that there's lots of new experiments run day to day in all the portfolio companies, lots of new experiments to look at from the perspective of what's out there in the world and the landscape writ large. And the ability to pivot and move quickly from trend to trend is quite easy, quite quick, and, and quite nimble. And in fact, in a way, we're incentivized. That's one of the biggest differences, in fact, moving from a large organization to a small VC is the decision-making process is much, much faster. And the ability to change decisions on the ground based off of the latest data and evidence is just much, much faster and much, much simpler. Thank you both. It's interesting hearing about the diversity and the similarities in your motivations. And while we've touched on this a bit, I'd be curious to ask, with almost every pharmaceutical company today having a corporate VC firm, what led you both to instead join venture capital firms instead of CVCs? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And actually, when I first thought about transitioning to venture, I wanted to join Amgen Ventures. And part of this was because I mentioned Janice Nave before. Janice is one of the fiercest women I know, and I just really wanted to work with Janice. She's amazing. But ultimately, as I thought about my true motivations for wanting to be a VC, I realized that I didn't want to be constrained by corporate strategy. I wanted to be empowered to invest in any company where I believe that one, the idea was a good one. And if it works, the future will be fundamentally different and better. And two, this is the right founder to do it. And I just didn't feel like I was going to be able to pursue that strategy within a corporate venture group. Yeah. Th thanks for the question as well. You know, my answer is actually remarkably similar to Becky's. It, the flexibility in what one can invest in, what founders one can support, what entrepreneurs one can support is just much higher outside of the corporate environment in general. It's hard to imagine any pharma, say, for example, investing in a company whose explicit goal was to blow up the model of pharmaceutical drug commercialization. It's just very difficult to imagine that because it's antithetical to their existence as a company. It's not to say there's anything wrong with that. I think it makes sense for companies to have strategies and invest aligned to those strategies. But when you're outside of the corporate realm and you're in a dedicated venture capital firm, like the one I'm at or, or Becky's at or, or a number of other ones, like, like you're at Chaz and, and many other folks, then the flexibility in business models in founders and entrepreneurs in ideas that one can invest in is essentially as big as anyone's imagination or vision and large transformative generational companies 
are something to look forward to and support and hope they do disrupt the way the industry operates and hope they do change how we, for example, deliver healthcare to patients 50 years from now, or how we discover drugs 50 years from now, or how we think about getting those drugs to patients 50 years from now. All, all those things that one can think of as blue sky thinking are just much more available outside the, the corporate strategy bubble. It's very interesting to me how both of your answers focus in many ways on startups and being able to not only engage with them, but the culture they possess. I'd be curious to hear from your own perspectives, having been at your firms these past few months, what is the culture like there? So in some ways, the cultural shift wasn't that different because Seth and I both joined during COVID. So we literally hopped from one Zoom call to another. Um, kidding, but not. On the one hand, some aspects are strikingly different of in jumping from pharma to VC culturally. I think one of the differences that I have enjoyed the most is the relatively flat organizational structure where all team members are very empowered to make decisions and we have the ability to move really quickly and make decisions very quickly. And that's been incredibly fun for me. On the other hand, something that has been delightfully similar, at least for me, is the incredibly strong team-centric culture. I can't speak highly enough about my teammates and the technology licensing team at Amgen. There was a true sense of everyone pitching in to get the best deals done as fast as possible. But similarly, I have experienced the same thing at A16Z, the, the sense of team at A16Z, whether in the bio group or um, elsewhere throughout the firm is really palpable. And getting to be part of the A16Z bio team has been an immense joy over the past year. I think you would be, be hard pressed to find another group who values the success of the team over the success of the individual more. I think another cultural thing that's been really a pleasure to learn and grow in is the deep respect of founders and of supporting founder-led biotech companies. That has been something that really has been deeply ingrained into me from our team. And I have enjoyed not only getting to participate in that, but learn from what VJ and, and Jorge and Vinita and, and Julie have set up uh, within the basic CC bio team. Very much like Becky's answer, the people in both my current firm, HVC that I'm at, as well as Amgen, were both great. The hardest part of leaving any job is, is leaving the people, in, in all honesty, right? A, a great group of folks at Amgen, still stay in touch with many of them, especially as some have left Amgen too, but it's just so hard to leave a, a group of folks that you know and you like, and you always worry when you go somewhere new, are you going to like the folks? Are they going to be fun to work with? Are they going to be good colleagues? And I feel very lucky and very blessed to have come to HPC where those fears were not realized. Everyone I work with is incredibly intelligent, incredibly smart, incredibly humble and hardworking. And there are times where I just wonder how lucky I've managed to be that I'm in this place that I'm at now. Culture-wise, I would say the number one ethos that underlies everything we do is we operate as one team and as one firm. And that means in a way there is no task so small or no task so big that anyone would say they couldn't do it. Whether it's cleaning up if someone left some trash out somewhere, which I've definitely done here in the office at APC, or larger, more complicated strategic questions about 
what investment thesis is the right one at the moment. All those things get involved with everybody to a degree in a way where we just feel like one family working together and having fun. And so that culture, we had that at Amgen BD in a way. I didn't share that necessarily with the entirety of Amgen's thousands and thousands of employees, simply as a, a matter of it's a large organization. You don't necessarily know everybody. And the culture at HVC with that family feel just, it really makes it feel like home. And especially post-COVID, where it's harder to see family and other sides of the country or the globe. Having that sort of pseudo-family here at APC has been quite helpful. Yeah, I think one of the things that's interesting too is, and this is firm independent, is in Pharma BD, there isn't really so much of a community and relationship between Pharma BD at Amgen and Pharma BD at, say, Genentech or Pfizer or Novartis, it's not like there's this community where you really know all the other BD folks on the buy side that well. It's more of relationships between the buy side and the sell side. And I think it's been interesting for me, the culture and community on the VC side that is completely different, where all the folks in early stage bioinvesting do know each other. And there is a goal to collaborate together and find ways that we can work together to push forward science in a collaborative fashion rather than it always being competitive. Yeah, 100% agree with that, Becky. There was that old adage when we were raising at Protomer that folks told us that you talk to one VC or three VCs really, and you've talked to all of them because they all tell each other what happened. And I'm not going to say I participate in that so much, but I definitely have experienced that where the number of folks reaching out after I've talked to someone, or maybe I'm going to be talking to someone soon from other VCs is just incredibly high. The word gets around so quickly when you're raising about uh, how great your company is and has someone else looked at it. In a way, I think it's very good, right? If you have a good company Everyone knows about it very quickly. Everyone's very interested to partner with you and work with you. And that can actually make fundraising easier because you don't have to physically go and talk to 100 different VCs to get that kind of reach and word of mouth. Thanks for tuning in BIOS Community. Sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please contact us at bios.community backslash AWS. As we talk about this community, that seems the best jumping off point into our next topic, which is how do we navigate pharmaceutical partnerships? And so the challenge of getting that first pharma partnership in particular is a nearly ubiquitous experience among founders and can often be critical as a vote of confidence when seeking investment. So as a pharmaceutical company, having come from those BD roles yourselves, what are some of the questions you sought to answer when considering partnering with a startup? So I think ultimately the questions are pretty similar in a lot of ways to those asked by a venture group thinking of investing. Number one, I'd say like, is the science solid? Do you believe their data? Are all the proper controls in place? Is it unique and differentiated from the competition? Question one is all about the science. Question two, and I guess this is a place where it differentiates from what VCs may ask, but do you have a need for it? Sometimes there's really cool, super promising science that simply doesn't fit into the therapeutic areas of interest or other strategic priorities of the company. 
And so in this vein, when Seth and I were looking at opportunities, we'd often ask each other, who will champion this? And if you can't name someone at the company, a scientist who would be willing to give up their time and their budget to champion something, that tells you something. And then I'd say number three is the people. Ultimately, just like in venture investing, people do BD deals with people that they like, people that they want to work with. These are often multi-year collaborations where you work very closely with the other team. You want to trust and respect the other team members, and it certainly doesn't hurt if you actually like them. Becky hit all of that right on the head of the nail. And the only thing I would add is there can be nuance in what kind of partnership is being sought and to what degree the parties will work with each other. To give sort of the extreme opposite ends of these examples, on the one hand, you have something like a pure patent licensing arrangement effectively where one party just wants access to the other's intellectual property, but effectively doesn't want to work in any meaningful way. And then on the complete other end of this, you can imagine a true partnership where scientists, where entrepreneurs, where creators are all sitting together in rooms, running experiments together, creating, discovering, all hand in hand, arm in arm. And then between those two is is a whole variety of things in between. And they do have differences, I think, with how they're evaluated and how much the pharma needs to think about, does it meet not just our strategic priorities, but does it also make sense from a resourcing perspective? If you're going to do, to go back to the extreme examples, right, if it's a pure patent licensing partnership, then the pharma company would need to really have not just scientific champions and desire to work in that space, but also the capability and the people set to do so, which is not always the case, right? Pharma's, while they're very large organizations, don't have infinite resources and infinite people, and they make choices about particular technologies, particular capabilities to emphasize over others, which means in some situations, they can't work on things. Some farmers, for example, work more in gene therapy, while others work more in small molecules, and maybe don't necessarily have capabilities in both, although some do. The flip side is when you think about the true hand-in-hand partnerships, sometimes those are actually about the pharma not having capability and wanting to build up some level of expertise and knowledge and familiarity in a field, and wanting to do it with the top people and the top technology, but acknowledging that the pharma may actually not be the expert in the room in that situation. It may be the smaller company, the startup that really knows the novel technology space better and is in part going to be the ones helping teach the pharma how to operate in that situation. And so it's difficult to come up with a single rule in that wide range of situations as to what's the right way to go about pursuing a partnership, what's the right version of a partnership. I do think, similar to what Becky said, a fundamental question most startups need to ask themselves is, do we even want to partner? I think increasingly today, there's a greater appetite amongst the venture community for companies that understand the science deeply, understand the value they're creating, and don't necessarily need to partner so early that they end up in partnerships where a lot of the economics are going to the larger partner. It's a bit of a give and take. Sometimes you need partnerships in order to raise your next round of funding, but sometimes you would rather keep 
the programs and your capabilities internal to the biotech, internal to the company longer to continue to incubate them further, continue to generate more value before you would entertain partnerships? Yeah, I think that's such an interesting point. I think up until recently, like a, a pharma BD deal was like a Twitter blue check mark. Like you had to have it approved that you were legit and it was expected by the best biotech companies, in some cases at the Series A raise or maybe at the very least by the Series B. But I think today the situation has changed and I've been seeing this both from the venture side and also hearing this from pharma BD friends. Capital has become so abundant that non-dilutive funding via partnerships is less essential. And we're seeing that many companies are willing to hold out for the big strategic splashy partnership. And if they can't get the price tag that they're looking for, they'd rather retain the value internally. In general, the existence of a pharma partnership is viewed as a positive signal. But the details do matter, as Seth said, and I may respect a company who has decided to turn down a prospective partnership even more than one who has taken a deal that's really more of a distraction than it is a value add. And the one, one aspect I'd add, just as you think about that as a startup, is value adds can come in many forms. Some of them are straight economics, right, cash from the pharma. But sometimes, you know, you don't want to build a capability, right? Maybe you don't want to build a commercial sales force or commercial marketing force, and you would rather just have the pharma bring that value to the table. And so there are reasons, I think, beyond straight economics to go into partnerships if it's going to be distracting from your company's vision. Maybe you vision your company as a neuroscience-focused company, but you turned up a really cool oncology target along the way, and you could choose to build out an oncology team or you could stay neuroscience-focused and, and let someone else work on the oncology aspect. It's all very nuanced. I guess I'm like doing the standard BD thing of saying everything's negotiable, everything matters, everything's unique. But I think in a way it really is true. And especially when you're a founder and it's your company, you want to optimize for your unique situation and a single blanket rule, which I don't think Becky or I believe there is, but you might hear from some advisors, it's just not the optimal situation. Yeah, that's so true. Dave Piaquad, the head of Amgen BD used to say, deals are like snowflakes, each one is unique. At this point, I should just let you both go back and forth and run the podcast without us. <laughs> You've got such a great rapport, but <laughs> jokes aside, that leads us perfectly into our next question and especially recognizing the nuances of startups. Once you're invested as a VC, how do you think about supporting the company and navigating those pharmaceutical partnerships? So this is an area where I think A16Z's operational teams model is pretty unique and, and really shines. One of our many operations teams is a bio-focused go-to-market team, and they do a lot of different things, but a, a large part of their job is to support our portfolio companies and strategic partnering. This team spends their day, day in and day out throughout the year, meeting with and building relationships with pharma business development and strategy teams with therapeutic area heads, with the CEOs and CBOs of biotech companies. And through those relationships, we have a pulse on not only what each company is looking for in terms of partnering, but also who the relevant people would be to get on board as champions to move a deal across the finish line. So through these relationships and the information learned and through these regular touch bases that we have with this broad network, we're able to not only guide our portfolio companies through targeted partnering processes, but also bring them inbound interest, even if they're not actively looking to partner. 
We also spend a lot of time helping our companies think through deal terms and deal structures, share knowledge on metrics such as deal comps to assist them in decision-making. As Seth and I have discussed, that's a place where I think having done it yourself and having experienced the ins and outs and pains and joys of multiple different types of deals can be really helpful in guiding your portfolio companies through that process. Yeah, that's a great set of things that Andresen provides. And here at eight, you know, our model is slightly different. Many of our investment team members are themselves either former founders or active founders. We do a number of company incubations at HVC. And so we actually have the opportunity and time to continue to work as founders and continue to see things from all sides of the realm. And so when it comes to partnering with and supporting other founders and entrepreneurs, which is the majority of things that we do, I think it provides us a a uniquely capable skill set where we can plug in people as needed to fill gaps, right? If you need an interim CBO for a couple of months to help you with a deal or a deal process, we can plug somebody in for you. If you need someone on an operations side, for example, we can plug someone in there. Those people are relevant. They're up to date on the latest information and comps and how startups operate, who's got lab space in a particular city that might be available, primarily because they just did it several months ago for a different portfolio company. And it's that active founder mindset that I think enables us to really support companies because it is something different to be at a startup and the mindset and what needs to be done is different than things at a large pharma. And I I have that change in my career where I was full-time at a startup and now I'm in fact interim CBO at one company. That capability set really enables us to support entrepreneurs because there's, I think, nothing more comforting than saying, hey, you know, I need help on X. I need help hiring someone or I need help in HR. I need help on this deal. And not only can we be coaches, which happy to do and and really thrilled to help, but we can at times get on the field with our companies and say, look, you need this for three months. It might take you six months to recruit a person for that position. We can just insert someone for three months free of charge and keep going with that. That's a really great support network for the portfolio of companies, Seth. And I think that ties well into our next question. Do you have any advice for founders in our audience on hiring ahead of BD as we talk about navigating these partnerships? I'm going to let Seth go first since apparently he's an interim CBO. So, Thanks, Becky. The most important thing with a head of BD to think about is actually deal experience, specifically deal experience where you're on the sales side effectively. Right. There's many folks that are involved in diligence and alliance management, but those folks in general haven't had to sell anything to anybody else. And it's crass to say it, but when you're talking about a partnership, your customer is the big pharma. You're selling to maybe only 10 or 20 people, but you are selling to those 10 or 20 people. And it's important to think about that in a B2B sales process. Who would you want as that person and what skill sets would you want them to be able to have? And you would generally want to have seen them be able to sell something successfully before. When you think about evaluating potential BD heads, folks that have led deal teams in large pharma tend to have that experience because they have to sell internally for a deal, right? They have to convince sometimes dozens of people internally to support something. And certainly folks who've had that experience at startups also would experience because they've had to go out and convince potential big pharma partners to sign up for a deal. So that to me is the number one 
thing I would look for in a BD head. I will also say sometimes you don't want a BD head. If you're only going to do one deal per year or one deal every two or three years, because that's your strategy to do a lot of internal work, it may not make sense to hire a full-time person there. Back in, in the days when I actually did experiments with my hands, we had the saying for directed evolution, which is you get what you screen for. And when it comes to people and hiring, you get what you incentivize for. If you're going, if you hire a head of BD, you are effectively incentivizing someone by saying your job is to go get a deal and they will go get deals. And you want to make sure that job and that goal is aligned with what you want to do as an organization. Sometimes you just want to spend a year or two buckling down, working on experiments, building the platform, and then you go do a deal. And you maybe then want to wait a year before you hire someone to go do those deals because you don't want to go off too early on that. Yeah, I think the only thing I'll add to that is that this is not always true, but I personally think that for particularly platform companies, hiring someone who has at least a basic a scientific background can be really valuable. Your head of BD will oftentimes be the first impression that potential partners get of your company and of your science. So having someone who can speak really intelligently about it, answer the tough questions and really wow your pharma partner can be a huge value add. This is particularly true for platform companies where understanding the pharma's scientific needs and how your technology can complement their programs can be really essential. Fantastic. And thank you both again once for joining us. A few rapid fire questions here before we come to closing. One, we'd love to get your perspective on what are some lessons you believe VC firms can learn from pharma companies and vice versa? I think the one to learn that I've noticed is, and it's difficult because of how organizations are set up, but at pharma, the bar to running your own experiment, if you thought maybe the model was suboptimal or the molecule was suboptimal and you want to just go run it yourself was very low because you had people on board. And I think ways to update the VC model so that you can help support companies, hey, if they didn't run the right model, let's say mouse model for an experiment, you can help them run that model very quickly before you have to make an investment decision could be quite helpful, not just to the companies, but also to thinking about how to craft a portfolio of great companies with great science. One thing to think about is ways to evolve the VC model to enable capabilities beyond just people in offices, but actually being able to support companies by having appropriate experts, and not just the experts, but more importantly, the facilities and capabilities to support companies in ways beyond you would have from your sort of traditional VC sitting in an office situation. And one thing I think that VC firms could learn from pharma, and this is not true of all VC firms are all pharma, but is to do your diligence. Deep scientific diligence was always a thing for every deal we did in pharma. That wasn't like even a question. And I've noticed in some deals, some founders are surprised at the level of diligence that we want to do, which tells me that there are others that are perhaps writing checks without doing deep diligence. Not only should founders welcome diligence, but they should demand it. Like you want an investor on your team who deeply understands your science, will be able to scrub in with you, will be able to advocate for you to other investors and potential partners, and who understands the potential pitfalls so they can help you navigate them. So I think, you know, in this case, knowledge is power. 
could not agree more. Definitely echo the sentiment there. Two fun questions we love to ask our guests here. One's a little bit big picture, if you bear with us. What do you feel are the grand challenges facing life sciences over the next 30 years? Oh man, this is such a hard question. One big challenge that I see some companies starting to tackle today, but that I believe will become a major focus over the next 30 years is transitioning from a focus on treating more simple monogenic diseases or those diseases where we understand the underlying mechanisms to treating incredibly complex diseases such as heart disease, you know, obesity, depression, aging. This is going to be something that's going to require advancements on many different levels and a very multidisciplinary approach. In that same vein, tackling neurodegeneration is going to be an immense challenge that I, I hope the life science sector will take on. And again, I think that's going to require like the best minds, the best biologists, engineers, computer scientists, and company builders to come together in a way that maybe hasn't been done before. And, and my very quick take on this is essentially affordability. We need to discover ways to make healthcare not just better in terms of outcomes, but also cheaper and more efficient in its delivery. I think, what is it, the U.S. economy, something like a third is now dedicated to healthcare, and it keeps growing over time. Obviously, it can't grow infinitely. At some point, it would be 100% of GDP, and that would clearly be an unsustainable solution. And so we need to find ways to not just deliver better outcomes to people so that everyone can live longer and have better and happier, more productive lives, but also do so in ways that are cheaper and more efficient so that we can continue to invest in the economy and other things outside of healthcare over time. So now that we've painted that picture uh, of challenges here, let's realize the vision. Where will we be in biotech in 2050? I think one thing that we will see a radical change in is business models. Historically, the pharmaceutical industry operates under a vertically integrated model, meaning you do research, you may take that product forward, you manufacture it yourself, you sell it yourself. And if we think about this from the perspective of other industries outside of healthcare, almost none of the other industries operate this way, or at least not for very long. As industries grow up and become bigger and more efficient, they tend to operate with many, many more horizontal businesses. So what's a horizontal business? Something like AWS, for example, where Amazon, and there are some competitors to AWS as well, but AWS is the name brand here. AWS provides for anyone that wants to sign up for it, access to server hosting capabilities. And you can think back not that long ago, 15 years ago, anyone who wanted to make any website had to host their own servers. But nobody really wanted to do it because it was inefficient to do it that way. And you couldn't generate large economies of scale. You couldn't come up with novel innovations. And for many other industries, this is how things have operated, is to move into more and more horizontal businesses that can rigorously apply efficiency and optimization to the problem in a way you can't as a vertically integrated business because you're trying to do too many different things rather than get incredibly good at a single task. And so... I think in 30 years, we're going to see this trend change where vertically integrated biotech and pharma companies are becoming less and less the norm as companies learn to focus on different pieces of the value chain and become rigorously good, rigorously optimized on those areas and operate more as horizontal businesses in the vein of something like AWS or TSMC, as opposed to a traditional 
single business that does everything. Man, I love that answer. And I really hope you are right, Seth. This is such an exciting thing to think about. When you look back 30 years ago to the early 90s, like biotech was in a completely different place from where it is today. Gene therapy and cell therapy were not commonplace modalities. CRISPR and gene editing didn't even exist. The FDA didn't even consider biologics as a separate category from small molecule drugs until the early 90s. So 2050, I think therapeutics and in fact, medicine in general will look absolutely nothing like they do today. I, I hope that our ability to make complex engineered living therapeutics that are able to sense and respond appropriately to their environment will be a reality. And I also hope that we will be focused on disease prevention rather than treatment, and that healthcare will be a much more holistic, personalized, and data-driven phenomenon than it is today. It's been a really fun podcast, folks. Here we touched on a lot of great topics. Any closing thoughts or shameless plugs you'd like to share? So I can give one thing. Just my last thought is that one thing that gives me so much hope for the future of biotech is simply the people involved. We've talked a lot about people today and how much they matter. And every single person I know who has dedicated their life to biotech, whether on the research or the business side, has done so because they honestly want to make a difference and they want their lives and their careers to have made an impact on human health and disease. I literally know no one who chose this profession because they thought it would be the easiest or quickest way to make money. And I think the desire to collaborate, to share knowledge, to build community, the willingness to mentor younger people and bring up the next generation, these are all things that I think are really unique in the biotech and life science sector because ultimately we're all focused on the same mission. And this is what really gives me a lot of hope and optimism for the future. Could not agree more there, Becky. And, and quite frankly, a tagline for our fund is driving patient impact. So I think to hit the nail on the head there of what you're saying. And I think our focus with BIOS really most importantly is as a community, it's together today for a better tomorrow. Couldn't agree more with Becky and, and Chaz. I'll add in, since I, I think I'm a little more shameless than Becky, the shameless plug is we have an unending need for talent in this industry. And certainly that's the case in our portfolio companies. Uh, as well as everyone else we work with. And so if you're interested in biotech, in startups, if you're interested in being a founder, if you're interested in working with some of the great founders and entrepreneurs that we support and invest in, hit me up. Certainly feel free to email me. We've also got a jobs portal at 8VC that I think has something like six and a half thousand jobs listed on there. So definitely let us know if you're interested. Thank you both, Becky and Seth, for an absolutely incredible episode. We're very, very grateful for your time. Appreciate you joining us once more. Thank you, Chaz and Chris. Yeah, thank awesome. you, Chaz and Chris. It was great. Thanks for tuning in BIOS community. Sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please contact us at bios.community backslash AWS. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.